You're listening to the Substandard Model. It's a common misconception that antimatter doesn't really matter. I'm here to tell you that that's not exactly true. Sure, it doesn't react well with matter, and there isn't a lot of it going these days. Um, that in itself is one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in physics. But in the same way that you can create atoms and reactions and, you know, do general chemistry with matter, you can do the same with antimatter. And I'm going to recruit my favourite seven-foot Scottish physicist to talk about it today. Oh, and... um. I wasn't able to find any background music that seemed particularly related to antimatter, so I hope you're enjoying the silence. Okay, so remember how we deleted like a bajillion episodes? It was actually just me who did that because <laughs> I was personally quite embarrassed about the quality of the content that we'd released before then. So Definitely. I'm going to rehash the previous content to see if we can capture a little bit of that childlike you know, wonder. <laughs> like wonder. We're to, yeah, we're trying to recreate our, our attitude to science when we were sixteen, going on seventeen, which was very, which was very different to that that of now. We we don't care about goddamn, you know, science. We care about taxes and long term relationships and mortality and adult things and children and children. I've always said that children are down. our future. So. I've always said that, funnily enough. And you know what's our our children are our future and goddamn physics is our past. You know, we're we're grown ups now. Uh so we're rehashing facts. Yeah, sorry. We're like That's a broken it. record. Right. So this one came from an episode called Frozen Muon Testicles. Yep. Oh, I remember that like it was yesterday. Yeah. The audio on that one was really bad because we'd recorded it. <laughs> we used to lights. spend so long figuring out the audio. Yeah. Anyway, here we are now with our amazing new system, which is we're not actually <laughs> going to tell you what it is because it's trade secret. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the one. <laughs> we're recording on Zoom. <laughs> no, we write it all down and then we get voice actors to professionally read it out for us. This isn't me. I'm not Henry. Yeah, as you can tell by us. My name's times. Dave. Yeah, he's not even Scottish. Henry. Henry isn't real. <laughs> Henry's a Google Docs form I receive every week. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this one is this one was called anti compounds. Yes, this, this, this corresponds to the muon part of the frozen muon testicle name. Uh, the other parts of that episode, if I sort of spoil facts, am I allowed to do that? Uh, yeah, spoiling facts is all we're here. Throw for. them in. Uh, the frozen one was actually from the Mpemba effect. Do you remember that? <gasps> oh, the Mpemba effect. Yeah, of course. The guy. So what's the like, Mpemba just, effect? It was like um, you, when you boil f- frozen water, it like boils quicker than hot water or something. No, it's the other way around. Hot water will freeze faster. Oh yeah, than cold <laughs> it's water. the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> Hot water will freeze faster than cold water. And it's a That's lovely right. little story because it's a guy from... Fuck, where was he from? He's just like a school teacher who discovered it. And no, then it was... he was a student. And then he said, hey, I think the ice cream freezes faster when we warm it up before we put it in the freezer. And then the teacher went, idiot, you're so stupid, you idiot. <laughs> you know, like, that's not how it works. 
and then it was like it is like the look at the studies on the impemba effect online it's a genuine thing they had a thing as well it said if you start with water at the same temperature and you put one glass and they're both in the same temperature they came from the same water source right you just put them in the same exact glasses you chuck one immediately in the freezer and then the other one you boil you put it on the heater really quickly and you heat it up and it starts boiling right then you take the one that was boiling then you chuck it in the freezer and the other one's been in the freezer for like you know two minutes at this point right yeah the the one that you put on the boiler first will freeze before the the cold one so even if you start them off from the same position that's cool, man. So if you want to freeze some ice cubes, it's smarter, although much more impractical and much more time-consuming and really not worth the effort because it's only mm-hmm. like four or five minutes of extra, like it freezes four or five minutes faster, which is still marked. But, you know, if you're leaving ice cubes in the fridge, it's not worth it. Um, but, but you know, if you if you want to speed run it, mm-hmm. boil your water, even if you if you just start by boiling your water and then chuck it in the fridge, because actually in the long term, that's faster than just chucking it immediately in the fridge. Hmm. Anyway, so Impemba. Yeah. Tanzanian. That's the one. And he's a game warden now, but he discovered it when he was a student. So he was a student in the 60s. And he died this year. What? He died in the 14th of May, 2023. No. We recorded this fact when he was still alive. Oh, no. That is a big loss to the physics world. Shit, I didn't even think, I didn't know about that. Erastro Bartholomeo Mpemba died earlier this year, May 14th, 2023. Rest in peace. Anyway, in the 1960s, when he was preparing ice cream to earn pocket money, he noticed that ice cream that had been warmed in the preparing process froze faster than colder ice cream in the preparing process. And he came in and he asked his physics teacher at school, said, why does warm stuff freeze faster than cold stuff? And his physics teacher laughed at him. And then he came back and proved it. And then that became the impember effect, which was his well-known, you know, it's a really mad effect. And they, they're kind of not really aware of why it happened. It was all to do with nucleation sites and whatnot. Anyway, so that's the frozen part of that episode. Hot water freezes faster than cold water. Yeah, big news. The do you remember what the testicle part of the episode is? I'm gonna be completely honest. It could be quite a few things. Okay. Was this the um one about sperm having taste buds? Yes, it was. It yeah, was, it was. why testicle. testicles have taste buds. Yeah, that's right, that's right. That was one of my I think. To taste why your To taste your, yeah, to taste, taste whether your, whether sperm, your is sperm is good. Yeah, whether there's like suspicious chemicals there. Uh huh. And it was. They're not really taste buds. They're just chemical sensors that look like taste buds. Yeah, but they're the same shape as taste buds. Yeah, yeah. So, like, they would kind of. They would work as taste buds, but they're not connected to the brain. So, you can't taste anything in your testicles. As you may have already noticed. <laughs> or not noticed as a woman. Or not as well. Yeah, yeah we we're men, we can just always taste it all the time. So, keep that in mind. I've, no, I, I've never tasted sperm. I was, I'll, I'll go as far as to say that. I know some people have. It's yeah. the thing. It's that some guys have. Some guys have. Some, I'm not. I'm. I'm a curious man. But there's a there's a line. You know, I give it a point. Maybe when you're 50 in some hotel room on holiday or whatever, you're like, all right, why not? Yeah, I, I, I can. I can probably see that. To be honest, <laughs> I've lived long enough. To, I need to know. <laughs> lived long enough. I've lived long enough without knowing what my sperm tastes. I might like. die next week. 
you today's know, the day. It's not happening later. Might you're making me want to. You're making. Do you mind if I just pause the recording really quickly? Like you're making me really curious. I'm just gonna go go for a quick one. <laughs> I'll, I'll report back just while it's fresh in my mind. We'll put a little technical difficulties. We'll be back in a minute. So Sam, how was it, Sam? How was it, Sam? I'll give you. I'll give you a call. All right, and now we move on to the muon section of frozen Woo! muon testicles. The muon section is the bit which I'm talking about today, and I, as I previously mentioned, anti-compounds. And basically the general gist of this is, can we do chemistry with antimatter? Because we sort of consider matter and antimatter to be completely separate things because you've got a world of matter and everything around you is matter and your bed's made of matter and your sebum on your skin is made of matter and mm. your, you know, posters and your tea and your coffee and your clothes and we your- get it. Things your juices, it's all matter. There's no antimatter there, yeah. It's all very real, um, bit too real. Um, the apart from the quantum foam, which we've mentioned previously, is sort of a mixture of antimatter and matter that exists because of you know, nowhere in the universe can you have no energy because of the uncertainty principle. There's always a chance there's energy, and thus there is always going to be energy and thus there is always going to be a little bit of antimatter everywhere. So there's a little bit of antimatter, but it keeps destroying itself with matter in a process called annihilation, which is bleak, um, mm. but it's aptly worth named. Mm. Because it is, I mean, it's worth asking, why is there more matter than antimatter in the universe, Henry? It's not worth asking, Sam, because no one knows. <laughs> <laughs> That means it's worth asking, I think. I asked. <laughs> Why do you think? Why do I think? Why do we think? This is a science podcast. <laughs> Give them the goods. They want to know the answer. Why is there I mean, more? It had to be one, right? You couldn't have a universe where there's equal concentrate, equal amounts of both, because they would just fuck each other, and and they would everything would explode. So I think it's like um, you know because how we talk about annihilation. Annihilation is Sam. Um, Annihilation is when an antimatter and a matter particle collide. The they 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 sort of become nothing. You well, know? they become a lot of energy. They do. Well, they become a lot of energy. It's like how a negative and a positive number become zero. Imagine if zero was actually a bomb. That's what this is. I, I don't understand what. I guess they release energy. Why do they release energy? Because there was matter there. Another. They just turn into photons. That's the general. Oh yeah. So you've got two particles of antimatter and matter that collide head on and then they turn into two photons that travel in the opposite direction such as momentum's conserved here's a question are they attracted to each other oh they are because they have different charges don't they? yeah 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 cash 22 which we'll come back to later sam why do you think the universe has got more matter or antimatter you said because uh, i said because be it has to i said like yeah let's and let's say there are lots of parallel universes where each one has different laws of physics or whatever the one which has, you know, unequal, uneven concentrations of matter and antimatter, that's the one where stuff happens. We just, matter, which one's matter and which one's antimatter? Who gives a fuck? Which one's negative, which one's positive? We made it up. Literally, we made it up. It's not like, yeah. like, that's kind of a pointless question because we just named it matter because it's the one that matters. Well, you didn't really say, so you just said that the, 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 there's a different amount of antimatter to matter in the universe because... Otherwise, there wouldn't be a universe. No, it's like, well, because, no, it's like, we, it's because 
There's not it's even saying there's but an alternate supposedly... universe where antimatter is the one that we use. That that's completely stupid and pointless to say. Because like even there is no alternate universe where antimatter is is the one that's common because it's the same. Oh see. It's completely the same. One and they annihilate each other, but which one's positive and which one's negative? Which one is there more of? Oh, I get it. Okay, that draws a line under it. Whichever one there's more of is the one with matter, and you can't really have a universe without one that's annihilating, so you've always got to have yeah. a balance between the two. So yeah, one annihilates the other, and you can't. And, and, and asking whether it's antimatter or matter is arbitrary because because it's always going to the matter, same. Because we're always just going to name it matter. Yeah, exactly. Lovely. Right, chemistry with antimatter. Supposedly, you can't do chemistry with it because it just blows up in your hand whenever you try and touch it with normal matter. What is chemistry? Chemistry is the study of reactions, right? I mean, that sounds like a reaction to me. Well, it did react, but it, it blows up react. in your hand. Yeah, but you didn't get a product, did you? I mean, the chemistry product was... is a study of electrons. Right? Well, fuck's sake, are you getting chemistry of antimatter is just matter and antimatter, and then you always produce photons? That's a bit of an easy example, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Bingo. Fucking Dr. Get on your back about that. What does it produce? We can't name and shame Dr. on the podcast. We can't do that. That, that, was, that was our ground rule on day one. <laughs> we're not allowed to name our chemistry teachers. Just in case. Get it out of the edit, whatever. I The, the Dr. Beep. Beep him. Yeah, Dr. Beep. Okay, talk to me about reactions. But actually, I'm going to be talking about a type of antimatter-matter chemistry where you can swap out particular parts of molecules for antimatter that fits it roughly mm-hmm. i.e. you could take a positively charged antimatter thing and swap it for a positively charged matter thing and it would last for just long enough that maybe you could do a chemical reaction with it with another matter object Okay. so let's talk about bits of matter and antimatter that sit stably with each other for a bit you can have things called exotic atoms where in like you've swapped out like different electrons for heavier cousins of electrons or you've swapped out different parts of the nucleus for like kaons and whatnot okay because actually you'd be surprised how much you know those things weigh compared to protons and neutrons like we always imagine protons and neutrons to be super heavy um especially considering they contain three quarks which is like quite a lot of quarks there's supposedly a particle massive five quarks and the quarks. <laughs> That's a huge number of quarks. But um Colossal. You can get kaons which have got, you know, a strange quark and an uh, and a down uh, no, they'd have a up quark or an anti strange and a down. Um right. so it's about half the mass of a proton. Um which is pretty significant because um interestingly the mass of these particles doesn't scale with what they contain which is a bit counterintuitive but actually most of their mass comes from the potential energy that glues all of their quarks together so a quark is not a third of the weight of a proton okay a quark is less no, than a third of the weight of a proton yes. yeah yeah because yeah. of the forces when if you add up the mass of all the quarks it's much less than the mass of a proton what you 
get to get to the mass of the proton is the potential energy that's confined between the quarks and that adds up to the weight and you can yeah. get strange kaons which have got lots of potential energy between their two quarks and yet they're still pretty close in mass to protons which means you can swap out a kaon for a proton if the kaon's positively charged and now suddenly you've got an atom of lithium which has got you know uh two protons one kaon and one Ooh. um and then four neutrons something like Jesus. that Okay. Which is very exciting because now you've got a reasonably stable, reasonably stable lithium atom that's exotic because it contains a bit of antimatter in its nucleus and yet still functions as a lithium atom. And you can do chemistry with it as if you're dropping lithium into water and forming lithium hydroxide. It would be the same thing. Only it would be very um, short lived and the kaon would probably smash off somewhere and then it turn into helium and then it would lose neutrons and you'd see all sorts of decays going on there. But yeah, for okay. a short period of time, you've got lithium with kaons there. The simplest matter, antimatter, um, uh, you know, particle is positronium. Positronium. Is that just when there's a positron instead of an electron that orbits a, wait a second, what are we orbiting? Exactly. They're orbiting a center of mass of them. It's, so it's a binary star system. It's the same orbit pattern as a binary star system. What? Orbiting a center of mass between the two of them, but it's a positron orbiting and an electron orbiting, and they're orbiting opposite each other. That's brilliant. That's so cool. I wonder if they have energy levels, because they could have like modes at which they can orbit each other that's defined by their properties, couldn't they? I mean, in theory. I'm going to Google that. But could positronium spontaneously form from a virtual pair? Positroniums have, well, uh, that's a thing, but they need to be reasonably stable. It has energy levels. Oh man, that's so cool. Lowest energy level is 6.8 electron volts below ionization. The next is 1.7 electron volts below ionization. Ooh. Oh my God, this guy's really big. Yeah, look at this. After a radioactive event, beta plus decay. So if you emit a positron after decaying, you know, a heavy element, right? Yeah. I.e. the proton turns into a neutron by emitting a electron neutrino as well as a positron. The positron then smashes into loads of electrons and decays as it does that, which is why you get the traces in um, cloud chambers when you've got radioactive items because you've got the uh, positrons smashing into all these things yeah. and decaying, right? But yeah. actually, just before the moment of annihilation, it forms positronium for a short second. Um, for a short second, but it's yeah. unstable. And they use, like, for positron emission tomography, which is like um, electron microscope stuff with uh, yeah. positrons, um, 10% of the so 60% of positrons will directly annihilate with an, an electron without forming positronium, mm -hmm. right? You can tell that that's happened because of two gamma rays that come off. 10% form parapositronium, which decays in about 0.12 nanoseconds, which also then forms gamma rays. Then 30% of the positrons, positrons form orthopositronium, but then oh. annihilate within a few nanoseconds, which is, you know, order of 10 of uh the, the higher than para positronium so you've got para positronium and ortho positronium and ortho you've got para positronium which decays much faster than ortho positronium and ortho positronium decays because you know how they're orbiting around each other in that binary star system the yeah. positron will smack into another electron that's not the one that it's orbiting oh i see so it's, uh, so it's not necessarily unstable on its own 
but it can only do that when the uh, one it's orbiting has got a different spin from it because it requires the other one to be able to to decay because it needs to oh wow and they decay into three gamma rays that's so much this it feels like there's quite a lot of power in that yeah and then there's this little fact orthopositronium yeah when it's alive just before it decays so about a few nanoseconds of lifetime it exhibits a strong zero point motion that exerts a pressure and is able to push out tiny nanometer sized bubble in the medium you hearing that kind of wait a nanometer sized bubble in the medium so what happens is it increases i think the zero point energy of that point in space where the positron is positronium is and that pushes the zero point energy it creates a little bubble where it goes negative casimir effect pressure what a bubble of quantum foam damn that's brilliant anyway so positronium has energy levels yeah like a regular atom but the problem with positronium is that they're orbiting a central point between the two of them the center of mass between the two of them they're equally weighted binary stars that spiral around each other until eventually they decay which is a couple of nanoseconds or 100 nanoseconds depending on the situation yeah ideally though we would have conventionally like hydrogen to be able to replicate hydrogen in chemistry we want a big central nucleus which is positive with a negative one that spins around it so what we do is we take the electron's heavier cousin muon a muon and then we take an, a, you know, an antimatter muon, an anti-muon, because that's positive. Yeah. And then we create the same situation that we had with positronium, and we swap the positron out for uh, antimatter muon now. And now you've got an electron that orbits an antimatter muon, and because a muon's 216 times heavier than an electron, that's the central mass sits within the muon now. See, this is my favorite part, because this that just feels a lot like an atom. It is an atom. Is it technically an atom, is my question. Like, I wouldn't define that as an atom. Is muonium an atom? Can't be. Oh, Google says muonium is a single electron atom. A fermion atom. Why is atom. muonium not an element? It's a lepton element. It, muonium's an exotic atom. So it is an atom. An and so an exotic atom. atom is just an atom made of... Antimatter and matter. No, it's antimatter and matter, and it doesn't have to be fermions. Because fermions are protons and neutrons and muon and uh, mesons. Wait, no, that isn't that. Sorry, fermions include. Sorry, baryons are protons and neutrons and mesons, and fermions yeah, are ones right, with half right. integer spins. Sorry, so this is a fermion and lepton atom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what can we do with muonium? Well, it's very similar to hydrogen now because it's a single electron orbiting a pretty heavy central nucleus. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, it's not quite as heavy because hydrogen's nucleus is like 1,836 times the mass of an electron, and muonium's is only um, 216 times. But there's yeah. different types of mass, if I remember. So mm-hmm. what's exciting about muonium is the Bohr radius, which is the it's like a it's a it's a radius. It's a distance that's given by an equation that Niels Bohr came up with, and it's supposedly like the average distance of electrons from the nucleus so it's sort of like an average size of an atom what's the average radius of an atom right right it's a way of quantifying the spatial size of atoms and the ball radius is within half a percent uncertainty of the hydrogen deuterium and tritium atoms so that's very close it's very similar size 
and the ionization energy, i.e. the energy required to liberate this singly, this one electron from the atom of muonium is also within half a percent of the ionization required for hydrogen and deuterium and tritium. So the properties, the size and the energy requirements to liberate electrons in this system are very similar between uh, muonium and hydrogen, basically. Which is interesting because it's like, okay, the mass is different, but actually the energy levels are seemingly unaffected and the size of the atom is also seemingly unaffected, which is like, okay, sure, gravity doesn't actually affect the atom at all, really, which is why these are so similar. So what can you do with muonium? What can you do with muonium? Well, okay, we'll start with how they're making muonium. Okay. They'll find some sort of decay which produces muons, and then they'll slow the muons down in matter. And then once the muons get slow enough, just like the positrons which are emitted in beta decay, some of them will capture electrons and form for a short period of time muonium. Muonium is much longer lived than um, positronium, so it's much better for this sort of chemistry stuff. I'm going to read off the stats that I didn't read off earlier. Hydrogen, mm. just standard proton and electron hydrogen it has a reduced mass so reduced mass is the product of the two masses of the two particles in the system divided by the sum of the masses of the two particles in the system and a reduced mass of hydrogen is 0.9995 and a reduced mass of muonium is 0.999 sorry 9952 reduced mass of positronium obviously is 0.5 because they're equally weighted um, the Bohr radius is 0.053 for hydrogen and is also 0.053 from uranium. And the ionization energy is 13.6 for hydrogen and 13.54 from uranium. Mm-hmm. Elect- electron volts. That's the ionization energy. So that's the, also the negative of that energy is the lowest ground state of each of them. So they've got similar energy levels as well. Okay. So they've got the same energy levels and the same size basically, is what I'm saying. And the same attraction and electron affinity, which basically means muonium's a very good proxy for hydrogen. If you ever needed one. If you ever needed one, but you do later on. So what we do after we create them from, you know, producing uh, muons that capture electrons, and Mm -hmm. they survive after they've captured an electron for about uh, two to two to three microseconds, so much longer than um, positronium. Yeah. Um, and after they survived, we use it to mimic hydrogen. So what we do is we actually bond it to things that we'd also bond hydrogen to. So you can form hydrogen chloride, but it's with muonium, so it's muonium chloride. And then, oh. you know, the okay. product of that is you could create Imagine. acids. Muonium acids. Muonium acids with dissociated muons. And I suspect, Sam... Yeah, but a muonium ion couldn't survive. It can. Well, it will survive for the same period of time. It would just be like... Yeah, it would just... Yeah, I mean, it's it's surviving until it gets annihilated. I don't think it's... The capture of it increases its longevity apart from through the quantum zero effect. Hmm. Okay, wait. So, if you but if you have a muonium ion, like, is it a long? Is it alive for long enough that it can work as an acid? It's around for long enough that it forms uh, organic compounds. So, so yeah. So you could get burnt by muons. Yeah, and muons taste sour. Oh, nice! That's great. Muons so taste sour. Experimentally, 
they've proven that they can do uh they can turn ethene into ethane uh adding muonium mm-hmm. which means you're now forming uh you know the double bond on the ethene so you've got the double bond between the two carbons you've got those extra electrons then an you know a molecule of muonium comes along and it breaks that double bond, and then two electrons from those p orbitals that sit on the double bond each go to one muonium and form two bonds on each carbon, uh, or one bond on each carbon, two bonds co- together, um, and that'll be ethane, but with two muonium atoms stuck onto it. They've done benzene rings, where it takes electrons out of the middle of the electron ring and sticks an extra hydrogen on, slash an extra <laughs> muonium on, They've done um, carboxyl groups, which turn into OHs, but actually they're OMUs now because it's <laughs> an oxygen bonded to a muonium. Triple bond breakage as well has been done. So basically they're just doing wow. organic chemistry, but instead of using hydrogens, they're using muons. And this is really short-lived. So they can only do... It's like really short-lived. But stuff. you'll see the gamma ray emissions after... Yeah. Well, yeah. Because the muon doesn't decay into the... What happens is the muon decays into other stuff separately from the electron that's on it. Like a neutrino or two and then some other Yeah, because the positronium is always decaying with the electron it's with or an electron that's next to it or something like that, right? Yeah, okay. But um, the the muonium can't decay with the electron it's with generally. So it'll decay into possibly a positron and, you know, whatever else, right? Just as mm-hmm. long as you're conserving lepton number and baryon number, etc. Right. So, you know, you can do NMR. Wait, I it's- thought you could only do NMR because hydrogen had a magnetic nucleus. Hmm? I thought you could only do like NMR because hydrogen had a like ma- magnetic resonance. Like I thought you could only do it because hydrogen interacts well, with magnets. Why don't muons? I think muons are magnetic. Do they have spin? Like a net yeah, spin? Yeah, have a spin. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I just that is odd because I imagine I just imagine as yeah, huh. it's 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 called MUSR muon spin spectroscopy. Yeah, it would have a spin, wouldn't it? Of course, it's it a would. magnetic resonance technique analogous to nuclear magnetic resonance or an electron spin resonance spectroscopy. So they do electron spin re- ESR. So it's not quite NMR, NMR but it's ESR, like the same thing. MUSR muon spin spectroscopy. So it's ESR or MUSR as as opposed to NMR. But for me, I thought spin was analogous to magnetism. But maybe uh, no, I mean it is. I, I see what you mean now. Uh, is useful for the analysis of chemical transformations and the structure of compounds with novel or potentially valuable electronic properties. It's basically saying we do that. We do what we do with NMR, but with muonR. That's crazy. And the, I mean, reason, that's not... the reason we do all this, we've basically yeah. got a really lovely similar chemical substitute for hydrogen. But why would you want a chemical substitute for hydrogen when it doesn't ask. exist in reality? Well, it's for observing the properties of these compounds as if it is hydrogen without the added dis- downside of having to deal with three quarks exchanging gluons. Because a muon is a fundamental particle. There's nothing inside a muon. It's like an electron. It just is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And the problem with hydrogen is that because of all the gluon exchanges mm-hmm. that happen, even in just a single proton, although in deuterium and tritium, you've got neutrons as well, and they're exchanging mesons, right? to stick uh-huh. together so they've got even more messy is that you get a lot of energy fluctuations due to the quantum foam created 
by the probability of having gluons existing between your quarks and outside <laughs> of your quarks, right? So that actually affects the energy levels of these chemical bonds that you have between hydrogen and oxygen or hydrogen and carbon. And thus it affects the amount of energy required for particular types of reactions. But if you just have straight muon, there's very little fluctuation in the energy level of or the, the, the amount of energy contained within the quantum system that is the nucleus of this muonium atom because it's just a muon, right? My God. I mean, that I'm is, the door. that is, this has been a very foamy episode. Yeah. It has been a very foamy episode. Basically, quantum foam, it results in added uncertainty in the measurements of energy levels and, you know, energy of reaction, etc. So we use muonium as a substitute for hydrogen because it's very close in terms of energy levels and reactivity and size and distance from other atoms and whatnot. But it doesn't have any quantum foam inside of it because it's not made of three quarks. It's actually in, made of one fundamental lepton. In what context would you do that? Don't know research. <laughs> research where like Exact masses and stuff okay. doesn't matter as much as exact energies in the nucleus. It's useful. And are you ready for this? Yep. It's useful when researching the specific bound state quantum electrodynamics. I mean, people love the muon because it appears to be like, you know, like the new, the G2 thing was about muons in magnetic fields and stuff. Yeah. Like people, and I think people are looking for a uh, new standard model stuff using the muon. And I think they're using muonium to do that. Ooh. It can detect any deviation from the standard model much more effectively. Yeah, look at this. Muonium. The recent result, do you remember the muon G2 anomaly? Yeah, yeah. Everyone, or who doesn't? Right, the recent Fermilab that the muon G2 anomaly puts the muonic sector once more under the spotlight and calls for further measurements with this particle. So here we present the results of the measurement of the 2s1 half f equals 0 to 2p1 half f equals 1. So that's a energy level transition in muonium. The mm. measured value of 580.6 megahertz is in agreement with the theoretical calculations, but they're expecting a lamb shift of a hundred, a thousand and forty. Yeah, I was megahertz. just reading about the lamb shift. Right. And they're also determining hyperfine splitting in muonium due to, um, uh, uh alignment of mag, uh, spins between the electron and the muon. Ooh. The basic, I, I mean, it's just useful. It's like a lot of physics where it's just like, it's good to have. Yeah. It's like it yeah, it's comes up tool. every so often. It's like, oh, we want to mimic hydrogen, but in this case, we'd rather we didn't have the this. And also, there's stuff that we don't want to mimic hydrogen, but actually just want to use muonium for as well to explain the G2 situation. Yeah, I think it's more to do with like muonium being is, is a useful tool for studying further aspects of how these things behave. Like, it's not like we're going to build something out of it, it, You know, it's fundamentally quite a weird thing to have an antimatter nucleus with a matter electron that's stable enough. And they're both leptons. We forget it. They're both leptons, which is weird in and of itself. They're both, um, like, electrons are leptons, basic, and, and neutrinos are leptons, but, you know, protons and neutrons, none of that's leptons. So you've got a, an entire atom that's made from leptons, that's stable enough for a pretty long time, actually. Microsecond isn't bad. No. No, Especially, we're doing chemistry with it as well, so that's dope. Yeah, what, what surprises it. me most is how you can treat it so similar to an atom. Yeah, it's just amazing that the results come out that it's got the, basically the exact same width as hydrogen and the exact same energy <laughs> levels as hydrogen. 
It's ridiculous. I mean, like there, there, there could be, you know, a quarkless world where muonium is the building blocks of chemistry. Yeah, we'll keep looking for that exoplanet. You know. <laughs> oh God, that would be especially considering a very like, unstable. I think muons are one of the more common results of cosmic rays hitting the Earth, aren't they? That was that was the thing that we measured in order to prove relativity. It's because they're constantly wearing down on us. Well, there's that. And there's the, do you remember the Great Pyramid of Giza where they found that extra room using, um, yeah, myography detectors, myography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I like, mean it's we, amazing to think that myography actually is probably a measure 30% of the time or whatever of meonium formation. So you've got these sort of quasi hydrogens that are being observed which are a combination between matter and antimatter that are being used to find a hidden vault inside of the Great Pyramid of Giza. I just want to applaud you for the word quasi-hydrogen. I think that was really cool. <laughs> that was really... You read enough physics papers and you start talking like them. Yeah, it's just like an atom, but better. You're listening to the Substandard Model, 